Well, because um, uh, I didn't know I was going to be teaching tonight until this afternoon, we're not continuing on in Exodus. We'll have to wait until Don is back to do that. Uh, so instead, we're going to be doing uh, essentially what we've been doing in senior high Sunday school. So, uh, Chelsea, you were there this morning. Sorry, it's a bit of a repeat um, of what we were doing here uh, Yeah, in Sunday school this morning. And what we do, uh, I've gotten in the habit to start off the school year in senior high Sunday school to do what I call a gospel refresh, All right, to just take a few weeks, just usually three weeks, to review the most basics of the gospel. Um, I feel like this is important. Like if we're going to start off on a certain foot, it should be the gospel. Uh, the gospel is kind of the beginning, middle, and end of the Christian life. It's the soil in which we're planted. It's not just what starts us off in the Christian life. It is the way we grow uh, throughout our entire Christian life is planted in the gospel. Um, so each year I, I try and do like, Ladies and gentlemen, this is the gospel, as basic as possible, to even find some way to walk through it in a really basic way. Uh, I, I'm, I'm told, I might have my facts wrong, because I've heard this like third hand, that uh, way back in the day when Vince Lombardi was a coach, that every year, even though his teams were winning championships, that they would start off the year, uh, he'd kind of grab a football and he'd gather the guys around and say, gentlemen, this is a football. Right? He's kind of Part of his coaching philosophy, if that story is correct, um, was that he was always, okay, if we want to be successful and continue being success successful, we need to make sure we're going back to the basics. Uh, so that's a little bit of my philosophy in starting off every year with just this gospel refresh. And so a, a key place we go uh, for that, I should probably move this around, hold on, is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. It's where uh, Paul gives what I would call the elevator version of the gospel, right? Is, this is the news uh, told so quickly in such a succinct, succinct way that you could share it on a two-story elevator ride. Right? If someone says, what's the gospel? I've got one floor. Uh, before I get off, tell it to me. You'd say, well, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ was buried, Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Right? That's it. That is the essence, the core, the basics of the good news of the gospel. And so what we've done here in these three weeks in Senior High Sunday School is we're going to take basically one week to walk through each of those actions, right? So last week we went through how Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Uh, next week, we'll be looking at how Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. But this week, actually, we were looking specifically just at the fact that Christ was buried. And I know you all, I heard the Bible's rough page, pages rustling. I know you just turned to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, uh, but that's actually not mainly where we're look, we've been looking at, and that's not mainly where we're going to be looking this morning, or notes probably say this morning, this evening. Um, we're actually looking at uh, Luke, end of chapter 3, into chapter 24. Because what we see as we read Luke's gospel account, his story, his longer story of the good news about Jesus, is that not surprisingly, his gospel story has the same rhythm 
the same pattern as Paul's. And this shouldn't surprise us. One, just because the Bible is ultimately has one author. But even more kind of on ground level, uh, we know that Luke was a traveling companion often with Paul. So the fact that Luke had Paul's gospel summary in mind and probably knew that elevator version, that exact phrasing that Paul shares in 1 Corinthians 15, shouldn't surprise us when we see that he gives a chunk of time to describe the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and then how Christ was raised. And so that's actually what we're doing this, e- this evening. We're looking at uh, Luke 23, the middle one of these, 50 through 56, where we read about the burial of Christ. And so as we, as we do that, I, I want us to think a little bit. I want us to think seriously about death, the reality of death. This is not something that I think our culture at large likes to think about. We like to kind of hide it out of our way, right? Sterilize it, kind of ignore it if we can. Certainly don't want to be around it. It's understandable. Um, the idea that we're going to die someday, we prefer to ignore. It's always amazing how in the celebrity world, we constantly celebrate how you know certain actresses or actors will reach a certain age and they still look young, right? Isn't it amazing that Paul Rudd is a certain age? I don't know how old he is, but he looks so much younger. Isn't it amazing how, again, insert this actress looks so young? Um, we like to celebrate that, like the idea that this person isn't actually aging. We think that that's a real accomplishment. If you look like you're not actually aging. I feel like I've, I've brought this up before, but it's a, just an amazing um, seeming obsession in our culture. I might even be overreaching on this one, but I've wondered if uh, part of the reason, again, I might be overreaching on this, is part of the reason we put so much time and money and energy into keeping our lawns green is because we're worried that they're going to remind us of death. Maybe I'm overreaching. Maybe a brown lawn doesn't really... Um, kick that up. But you do wonder, why do we spend so much time and money and energy into preventing your lawn? So many people preventing your lawn from going brown. Um, When we know seasons change, we know droughts happen. Um, What are we trying to avoid? What truth are we trying to avoid? But um, there's a theologian who's been brought up before, really very well known in the 20th century. Not someone I recommend for Um, all his theological insights, but I thought this, the way he put this was really poignant. It's Karl Barth, and he said, as you can see here, someday a company of men will proceed out to a churchyard and lower a coffin, and everyone will go home, but one will not come back, and that will be me. Sobering thought. We've been to uh, funerals before, Maybe you've been to many funerals before. But the, the reality that one of these days you're going to attend a funeral and not go home afterwards because it's yours is one of the harder truths to wrap our minds around as people. Um, and so my goal this evening 
is to let us, is as we look at the burial of Jesus, like I said we would, is to make us simultaneously realistic about death, but also hopeful, to not give up hope because death exists, right? We want the wisdom we see in places like Psalm 90, verses 10 and 12, and all sorts of other places in the Psalms, or James 4.14 famously, right, where psalmist in Psalm 90 says, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, right, average lifespan. But their span is toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Or James 4.14, very famously, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time, and then vanishes. Right? We'd love to think we're permanent. We're not here, gone. Um, so we need that wisdom, but we shouldn't despair as we hear that. Uh, many people maybe get that piece of the puzzle, and it just causes them to despair. But we think of the sort of hope Paul talks about in First Thessalonians uh, four thirteen and following. Right, very famously, he talks about how uh, we, we don't want to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, and he's talking about those who've passed away, who've died. And he, he doesn't want you to be informed that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Right? There's this type of grieving that's just hopeless despair. Like once it's gone, it's gone. Once, you know, that's the sort of thing of a certain age and my youth is gone forever. My life is just gone. This person's gone. And there's just despair and darkness and nothing more. Um, Paul's not saying here, we don't grieve, right? There's kind of a, a group of Greek philosophers who were fo- very popular for a long time called the Stoics. It's still kind of a popular philosophy today. Uh, kind of the idea of a Stoic was that you just lived with a stiff upper lip, right? You took reality how it is. You never got kind of too emotionally too high or too low. You just kind of lived in control of your emotions and everything, and so the Stoics would say, you know what, yeah, we don't grieve death. They'd be, we don't, we don't grieve death. In fact, some Stoics even kind of glamorized suicide because it was a way to be in control of your own death. You're just in control of all your life. So that Stoic attitude is not what Paul's saying here. It's not that we don't mourn. Jesus himself wept at Lazarus's grave. Um, the, the Psalms are filled with people mourning and lamenting Faith doesn't make us Stoics, but there's an edge taken off our mourning by the hope that we see that because Jesus died, as verse 14 says here, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even through, so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those you know who have died. He will bring with them. It's not the end for them. There's hope beyond. So that's why I think that is my goal as we look at Luke 23, verses 50 through 56. So let's walk through that now. Luke 23, 50 through 56. I'll just read a few verses at a time, kind of unpack what's going on there. This is immediately after Jesus has been crucified. Luke describes it as um, him having, in verse 46, as having said, uh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And you get reactions from the centurion 
and the crowds that assembled and some of his disciples, his followers who'd come from out of town. We see all that in verse 48, 49. Then in verse 50, we get introduced to a man named Joseph. This is not Joseph, Jesus' father. This is another man named Joseph, same name. So I'll just read these few verses here about him. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish, Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and a righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and who was looking for the kingdom of God. Right, so we just pause there real quick. We just got introduced to this, this gentleman, Joseph, and we actually learn quite a few things about him. Luke pauses to, to give him a, a pretty full description, um, in considering what's a fairly tight narrative. And so what do, we, what do we learn about him? Well, we learn about this man named Joseph. He's from Arimathea, which we're pretty sure is about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Uh, but then we're told he was a member of the council. You may wonder, what, 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 what council are we talking about? Well, he was a member of that group of Jewish leaders who'd been in charge of the legal proceedings that had handed Jesus over to be crucified. So he was on that council. And so immediately they're thinking, not a good guy. But, Jesus, but uh, Luke clarifies a few things. Make sure we know that, yes, he was one of these uh, Jewish people with this sort of higher uh, standing within his society, within the city and the area. He was part of the council. But he didn't follow along with them, right? He was a good and righteous man in contrast to those who'd kind of ran the sham trial that sent Jesus to the cross. He was a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. So you almost get this, uh, what we might call a, a profile in courage here. You can imagine the whole council is just, just rabidly looking to send Jesus to the cross, to have him crucified. They want him gone. And there's Joseph not consenting, right? Seemingly being like, when everyone's going one way, he's the one willing to stand up. We don't know exactly how that played out, how vocal he was, but he certainly was not, we're told he wasn't consenting to their decision and action, maybe trying to stand in the way. He thought uh, there, maybe there was something to this Jesus, right? We're told he was looking for the kingdom of God. So we get introduced here for a few verses to, to Joseph. And then we see, again, his courage on display as we see what he does. Because we're told that this man, that's Joseph, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid, it, laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Again, you can imagine the courage it takes to go on to associate yourself with this person who'd just been crucified. Right? So he goes up to Pilate, who you know, who'd allowed Jesus to be crucified, and asked for his body. Um, I think the normal custom, as I understand it, with a crucified criminal was to let them stay there. Basically, just kind of rot on the cross, essentially. Uh, they were there as kind of a, a warning and as a lesson to others who may dare cross Rome. But there's Joseph uh, stepping in, asking for the body of Jesus, as we'll see in a few verses. We're reminded that it's, it's just about the Sabbath, which for them would have, that day would have started at sundown. And if Jesus was being crucified between noon and three about, 
they've got maybe four or five hours to take care of all these things. So um, as soon as he could, he goes and he asks for the body. He does what he can to kind of quickly prepare it for burial. He took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. So we see this kind of great personal cost, almost certainly a family tomb that they had there. And he, um, again, out of his own pocket, we might say, is willing to take care of Jesus. And we might pause here for a moment and ask, why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? Well, now we're told he was a good and righteous man. Um, as I asked this question in Sunday school this morning, one of the students uh, just kind of was as a little thought experience that maybe he felt guilty, right? Maybe he had wished he could have done more. That seems very plausible. It's not what the text draws out, but it's really easy to picture him wishing he could have done more, right? He'd been part of the council. If only maybe he could have said the right thing, worded things differently, made his case a little bit better, but alas, here's Jesus crucified, and you wish he could have done more. But whatever his motivation, I think what's clear and what we need to, to not mistakenly project onto him is a belief that Jesus was about to rise from the dead. It, it, it could be tempting to try and read in a little bit of faith in Jesus. Like maybe he's still holding out hope that Jesus is the Messiah, right? He's going to be the one. He's going to stick by him because he's holding out hope. But that's clearly not his mindset right now because if you think someone's going to rise again, you do not seal them into a tomb. Seems pretty obvious. No, Joseph of Arimathea is absolutely certain that Jesus is absolutely totally fully dead not coming back again it is a shame maybe he still deserves some reverence but joseph was sure that the person the body he took down from that cross wrapped in a linen cloth laid in that tomb he was sure he was dead and it was just going to be gone forever we continue on joseph wasn't the only one attending to jesus because as I mentioned before, it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. So they just have a few hours to take care of this body, right? Um, if they are going to um, observe the Sabbath, as we're told at the end of this passage that they do, um, if they're going to uh, rest according to the commandment, they're not going to be able to do all their burial tasks on the Sabbath. So the women, we're told in verse 55, who had come with him from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments. So again, we see another group of people, these women who'd come from Galilee. Some, uh, Luke is always, uh, you know, makes a point of drawing out that Jesus had women followers. Luke often likes to draw attention to some of the, the in, in that day and age, lower status people who attached themselves to Jesus and uh, how they have a kind of a, are actually kind of at the front of the line in terms of devotion to the Messiah in the way that the higher status Jewish officials, the council, for example, uh, were failing to acknowledge their Messiah. But these Jewish women had recognized something. They'd followed him, followed him, and even observed as he died on the cross. They watched the whole thing, didn't run away. But here they are, just like Joseph, acting as if, He's dead. He's not coming back. Right? They go to the tomb. Right? 
they take note of exactly where he is and how he was laid, right? You can kind of imagine a little bit of a kind of a rocky hillside where these tombs may be. There might be other graves kind of dug in there. And they take note of exactly which tomb it was, how he was laid in. So there's going to be no mistake when they've got to come back, and they probably know they're going to come back as fast as they can early the morning on the first day, the day after uh, the day after the Sabbath. They're going to come back as quick as they can. So they're getting their spices ready. They're getting their ointments ready. Everything they'd use to, to bury, to uh, prepare him for a, a proper burial. Um, they're, they're kind of ready, but you know, they don't have time for that now. But it's clear they are, they're not expecting anything over these next few days. Except for a day of rest before they can finally go and care for Jesus. And I think one of the reasons this is important to note is just to see here how uh, trustworthy the witnesses to the resurrection are. I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves by referencing the the resurrection. But when the women say, hey, we went and we saw the tomb and it was empty, no one could accuse them of saying, well, are you sure you got the right tomb? Are you sure you were at the right one? It's like, no, they were told they took careful note of where Jesus was, how he was laid. They would know if anything was different, as it would be. So we've seen here what Joseph of Arimathea did. We've seen here what the women from Galilee did in these verses. But then maybe a, an odd question to ask is, uh, what is Jesus doing in these verses? Now, in one sense, that's a, uh, a big, loaded theological question. I had mentioned just offhand before Sunday school this morning that, hey, what are you teaching on today? I was like, oh, the the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus. And he goes, oh, what do you think he was doing during those days? Referencing these uh, different traditions about, well, he, maybe he went and he preached to the souls that are in hell about his, his, his victory or, you know, well, how does that jive with the fact that he says to the other the thief on the cross today you'll be with me in paradise are you going to sort all of that out you know, is he how is he in paradise with him and how is he uh you know in the grave how is what's going on here and so sometimes we think oh what's jesus doing on this day what's jesus doing on easter saturday as sometimes we call it we almost get a picture in our heads uh of like what you'd picture with an actor backstage in between scenes like frantically changing their costume and getting their hair fixed, right? So they've just finished a big number and they got to come out and they got to get changed. Before you see them again, though, there's all sorts of things that they're doing and then, you know, you don't, you're none the wiser in the audience. Um, they just come back out and they hit the next big number. But that's sometimes how we think of Jesus on, on Easter Saturday, right? He's doing something crazy, uh, doing all sorts of preparations. It's kind of behind the scenes. We don't get to see it. I'm not saying there aren't answers to some of those questions about what, what does he mean when he says, today you'll see me in paradise? And what does it mean when it talks about, uh, in, you know, as Christians have said in the Apostles' Creed for, for centuries, like he descended into hell, and then the third day he rose again. I'm not saying there aren't answers to those questions, but Luke, I think the gospel writers in general just show us he was truly dead. He was doing the same thing any other dead body would do the day it was laid in the grave. He was, he had truly entered in the fullness of 
all of our experience of death. When down the road we all have that funeral from which we don't come home because it's our own, we will all be doing something Jesus has already done. That burial, that full true death, is what Jesus experienced, right? We need to we need to banish what's really the heretical thoughts we all have sometimes that interpret Jesus and the stories about Jesus as kind of a mere tourist here in creation. Right? If you thought about how how you travel to a place versus how it is for a person to actually live in that place, I know I've spent a number of years, I've told this, you know, these stories before, of, of taking short-term missions trips to Albania. There was even one summer I got to live there all summer. It was, it was great. Um, you know, so Jane and I and the church we were part of before, I had a great connection with, with Albania. But there was always this weird thing about Albania is that we'd go and, you know, working with the church and doing ministry, we would get to know a lot of, um, you know, I remember spending a lot of time with two uh, 18-year-olds, Kaylee and Mealy, who had basically aged out of the orphanage. There were a lot of orphans there in Albania. A lot of poverty. And you're kind of ranking poverty in European countries. They are, Albania is way at the top. Usually them in like Moldova kind of duking it out for uh, poorest place in Albania. And so that was our experience often. But there's always, there's this other kind of face of Albania you'll see. People will talk about, oh, it's like the hidden gem of the Adriatic. It's like you want to do the Greek Isles, but cheaper, do Albania, right? There's like the tourist view of Albania, which is great. Go to Albania, you know, help the economy. This is a beautiful place, and it is cheaper than Greece, um, right? That's often, uh, so there's, there's, we, we have a concept, right, of like the, like the normal day-to-day life experience of a place and the tourist experience of a place. It doesn't really have to deal with all the, the hardship or the curse or the poverty or whatever it is. And that's sometimes how we've pictured Jesus kind of walking through life here. Yes, 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 he really was here. He really, truly human, fully human, lived a full human life. That really was Jesus the baby there on Christmas that we sing about and we get excited about. But, you know, he was kind of skipping over or skimming through the hard parts. Now, we could think of something like the way he calmed the storm just with a word, right? You know, be still. And like, that's how he lived his whole life. Just kind of anything got hard, just be still. He'd kind of lay out. He'd kind of just pull out his God power card whenever he needed to. Right? Never had to actually deal with sickness or all these things. But that's just not the picture of Jesus that the Gospels and Scripture paint. He entered fully in to the depth of the curse on creation, the saddest, hardest parts. I wonder if this could be, this could be illustrated as we think about um, just that verse in Psalm 16.10 that Peter quotes in Acts 2. As in Psalm 16.10 is when the psalmist, it's David, says, and you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Right? That's the, the grave, to death. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. And Peter, when he's preaching in Acts 2, when he references that psalm, 
He makes a point to say, well, that's not really referring to David, because we all could go visit David's grave. Right? When the psalm, David was speaking kind of as a prophet when he said, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, you not let your Holy One see corruption. He was referring to Christ. And that's absolutely right. right? He was not abandoned to Sheol. He's the Holy One, as the Holy One, he did not see corruption. But what's clear there is that Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One, was willing to trust God, his Heavenly Father, all the way to Sheol to be rescued, to be resurrected, right? It, what, he went through an even deeper experience, a deeper test of trust than, say, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're familiar with that story from Daniel? in the Old Testament, right? Great, again, just uh, profile and courage. Uh, a story of faith where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not, will not uh, worship uh, the, the idol in Babylon. And so they get sent to the fiery furnace. And they're like, well, we'll see what happens. Uh, our God can save us if he needs to, if he wants to. But even if not, we're not going to uh, kind of abandon our worship of him. And so they get sent into the furnace, and then there's a fourth man in the furnace, and then they get brought out, and it's not a single hair of their heads, right? It's scorched. Like they're not, it's like they haven't even been near a furnace. They haven't even been out in a hot day, it looks like. They're just coming back in, just fine and dandy. Amazing story, amazing story of rescue. But do you see how Jesus actually experienced like a step further than that? Right? He was sent into the furnace and was burned in the sense that he was sent to the cross and the grave and really entered in. God didn't come and scoop him out last minute, say, all right, wow, you really, really were willing to do that there. I mean, that could have gotten dicey if I'd really let you breathe your last. No, no, no. All the way into the grave. That's where Jesus went. The depth of our saddest experiences where Jesus entered into. So you say, well, wh- wh- why does this, this matter? Um, there's l- lots of reasons. A lot of them would be important to see as we see that uh, you know, Jesus uh, rose from the dead. And we, you know, if you're in high school, Sunday school class, you'll get to explore that a bit more next week. Um, but I think it's a, it's a lesson for us this way. It's a lesson for us in the idea of the love of God to rescue sinners. What was he willing to do? This is a lesson in the love of God. Where was he willing to go? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. What was he willing to do? Where was he willing to go? What's the most precious thing you've ever lost and had to go looking for? think, uh, you know, maybe at some point, uh, every once in a while, we'll lose our Aldi quarter. You know what an Aldi quarter is, right? It's that uh, when you go to Aldi, you need the quarter for the cart. And we always keep one quarter specifically for the Aldi cart. So when we go to Aldi, it's always there. We're not looking for any old quarter. We have our Aldi quarter. And every once in a while, it'll fall and, you know, come between the seat or whatever. 
You know how much time I spend looking for that when I lose it? Not very much. I'm not going to go do much work to find that Aldi quarter. I'll either carry it. That's usually my thing if I can't get a cart. Find another quarter if I'm lucky. Um, I'll figure it out. It's just a quarter. I'm not going to look very hard. Now, every once in a while, I'll lose my phone. How long are you going to look when you've lost your phone? Where, where, where will you go to find that lost phone? If you realize somehow or another, you know, you're doing the little find my phone thing or it makes that little beep and you realize it's in the garbage, are you going to go in there to get it? Yeah. Yeah, you will. Because that phone is valuable to you. Um, all right, we, we, we go on and just picture that, that. What you're willing to do to find something. How far are you willing to go to find something? Where was Jesus willing to go to seek and save the lost? All the way into the grave. Into the depths of our experience. So in very famously, right, in Romans 8, we know this verse, Romans 8, 38, 39, he says, for I am sure, right, these are famous, famous verses, Paul is saying something like, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is he able to list off all of these things? He doesn't list these things because here's a list of things that God will never let happen to you. No. The idea is that even in the worst of these, say death, death in all sorts of horrible ways, will not be able to separate us from the love of God. God went all the way into the grave to seek and save the lost. So we may very well enter into some of these things, the worst things, the worst things in life. We certainly will. All of us. Have that funeral someday. But even in there, we are not abandoned. Because even though you and I, we deserve death as the wages of sin. No? This is what Romans 6.23 clearly proclaims. Our Savior entered in, not for his own payment, but for us. So that death would not have the final word. So it's clear that as Paul so succinctly summarized it in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. He's clear. Christ was buried. He was in it. And there's the, the story's not over. His short little story's not over. When Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, right? Even this darkest of moments is not the end, right? We sing that song. I think we sang it last week in Christ Alone. There's that third verse. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. But you almost can't stop there, right? The music keeps you going. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, right? Light of the world by darkness slain. Very truly what happened, but not the end. And therefore, we, although death is very real, 
have hope. So let me pray, and then we'll have our closing song. Father, thank you for the hope we have. We face trials of many kinds throughout this life. We face darkness of many kinds. Yet we have not been abandoned by you, even though, um, according to just our own actions and our own nature, what we deserve is death. In your grace, you came to seek and save the lost and to defeat our enemy, not our just payment, our enemy, death. So thank you for your steadfast love and faithfulness that gives us hope. Uh, We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.